The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want us to turn to a very familiar passage this morning, found in the second chapter of the book of Luke. Luke, the gospel writer, gives us the most thorough account of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and it's a very familiar passage that I want to read this morning that uh, I'm sure you've read it many times. Uh, if you haven't read it in a long time, all you got to do is turn on the Charlie Brown Christmas special and you'll hear Linus read it. It's one of my favorite of all the Charlie Brown uh, shows. And it is a very um, touching and moving passage if we really understand what, what we're reading here. So this morning, I want us to look to tap, uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. And we're going to begin reading down through about verse 7. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This morning, I want to preach to you about the lesson of the manger, the lesson of the manger. Notice that she, it says she laid him in a manger. And I confess to you that always touches me when I read that. When I read about the account of the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who was present in the very creation the, the Word, capital W, Word of God, that was operative throughout history, throughout prior to history, before creation, perfect harmony with the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And this God of gods, this King of kings, this Lord of lords, was brought forth and laid in a manger. I want, I want us to look at the lessons from the manger this morning. First of all, we need to look at what it was, and then we're going to look at who he was, and then we're going to, Lord willing, look at what it means. So let's look at what it was. Well, first of all, I don't think any of us that live out here in the country have misunderstood what we're talking about. It was a very humble place where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Very humble place. In fact, the place where he was laid was a feed trough. I get that, don't you? It was a feed trough. It was a place where the animals came and fed, which means some things. It was not a very sterile place. It was not a very clean place. The sterility of the delivery room was completely missing from this location. Mary brought forth her child, not in a place that was attended by doctors, not in a place where she was comforted by nurses, 
She didn't have access to the, even the latest medical equipment of that day. There was no room for them in the inn. And they had to deliver that baby in a stable. And this little newborn child was taken and swaddled and laid in a feed trough where the animals were used to feeding. How humbling is that? Now, I've heard a lot of stories about all kinds of problems that my grandfather and, and great-grandfather had during the Depression. But this tops all those stories to me. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings was laid in a feed trough. It was a very humble place. But something else about the manger this, that we don't need to miss, it was a very human place. It was a very human place. And, and, and I want to say this, there's probably nowhere else in the Scriptures that the plight of humanity and the idea that Christ identified with that is better captured than right here in the stable and the manger. Because think about what has happened here. They have had a grueling journey. They've had, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. Nazareth was 90 miles from Bethlehem. Now, that's not a big deal today when we can jump in our, our, our Chevrolets and Fords and we can take off and we can get 90 miles in an hour and a half if, we're, if we catch the traffic just right. But in that day, the, the average, I think, was around 20 miles per day that people could, could make walking, okay? But remember, Mary was great with child. I found, I was doing a little research on how the, the circumstances were in, in the days of Christ's birth, and I ran across, a, of all places, an L.A. Times article from back in 1995. Uh, it was about the journey that they, had, um, uh, that they had taken, and I want to quote, I just want to read you some of what, uh, uh, what was uh, contained in that article, because it really struck me as I was considering what's going on here in this stable, in this manger. According to this L.A. Times article, it said they had to travel 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors, south along the flatlands of the Jordan River, and then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem and on into Bethlehem. And there's a man named James Strange, James F. Strange, a New Testament and biblical archaeology professor at uh, South Florida University in Tampa that they quote here. He says, it was a fairly grueling trip. Um, in, in antiquity, the most we find people traveling is 20 miles a day. And this trip was very much uphill and downhill. It was not simple. Uh, Strange estimated that Joseph and Mary likely would have traveled only about 10 miles a day because of her impending delivery. And the trip through the Judean desert would have taken place during the winter when it's in the 30s during the day and rains regularly and he said it would have been a nasty miserable journey and at night it would have been freezing if you think about the most that someone could travel and maybe the least that she was able to travel somewhere between five and ten days is how long it took them to get from Nazareth down here to Bethlehem and when they got there there was no nice welcome for them I'll never forget when Ashley our youngest daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We began to participate in a clinical trial for about a year out in Houston. 
And so we had to go out there once a quarter. So I think it ended up being five times we had to go out there. Well, interestingly, October was one of the times we had to go out there. And so we never made reservations ahead of time because there was plenty of places to stay, right? I mean, it's Houston. Um, so just find a Super 8, if nothing else. We can find some place out there in Houston near the hospital where we were going. Well, unbeknownst to me, who am not a big baseball fan, the Houston Astros were in the World Series. And it just so happened that the day that we drove out there was the first game in Houston of the World Series. And so when we got there, uh, couldn't understand why everything was booked up and how aggravating it was and how frustrating it was. And we, were, we could have at least slept in our car, you know, but we were so... Uh, I, was, I, was, I was scared that we weren't going to find a place. I was frustrated that we, didn't find, that we weren't going to find a place. I ended up having to pay like several hundred dollars for the World Series package at some hotel that I wasn't even going to the World Series on, but we at least found a place to lay our heads. I'm, and I've had other experiences like that where you had a hard time finding a place to stay, and the inconvenience of that was just so vexing to me, but all it was was an inconvenience. Because as I said, we had nice, a nice vehicle we could have slept in. We could have, uh, we, we could have driven another 90 miles and probably found something. But when they got to, uh, to Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. There was no place for this uh, woman who was great with child, about to uh, deliver her firstborn child. There was no place for even her to stay. And notice something else that I really hadn't thought of too much till this time when I read it again. You know why they were there in the first place? Let me ask you something. Does anybody here get frustrated about all the government intrusion into our lives? Is there anybody here that gets frustrated by the taxes we have to pay, by the regulations we have to follow? There are places even in our lives where the government intrudes and there are things that, that are frustrating to me. There are laws that apply to me. There are things our government is doing that drive me crazy. But notice why Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem. They were there. Now look, I know it was prophesied. I'm not, but, but let's step out of the biblical prophecy for a minute and let's look at it from a human standpoint because this was a very human place. I don't believe Joseph and Mary were thinking about the prophecies when they were, dry, they were riding or, or walking 90 miles down here just because the emperor said you got to be enrolled into the census so we can tax you. <laughs> How frustrating. Well, I live in Nazareth. Yeah, but you got to go back home. you got to go 90 miles from here, Joseph. You can't just use common sense and go down to the local uh, tax office and, and enroll there. You've got to go all the way back. But my wife is nine months pregnant. Surely you're not going to make me do that. I don't care. That's the law, and that's what the government says. They were down there because the government was forcing them to be there. Now, again, I know Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. I understand from a prophetic standpoint, in a providential standpoint, God was going to have his way. But from their standpoint... They were there because of taxes. Was this not one of the most human places 
that you can think of. I can identify with the struggles of Joseph and Mary. I can identify with the frustrations. I can identify with the anger. I can identify with the stress. The circumstances of his birth are something that I can identify with. I I couldn't have identified with this if he had been born in the palace of the emperor. I'd have had to say, you know, I can't can't really touch that. He deserved it. He deserved it. He ought to have been. He ought to have been attended at his birth by emperors and by kings and magistrates, but I couldn't have identified with that if that's the way it had been. Oh, but I get this. I get this. I understand the struggle and the frustration. It was a very human place. But I want to point out something else to you. And let's not miss this fact. It was a very holy place. Okay? It was a very holy place. Wait a minute, Brother Chris. You say this was a stable. Wasn't anything holy about this stable. Well, not in and of itself. The stable was just a stable. The manger was just a manger. The manger wasn't some kind of religious artifact that they kept and preserved. They kept feeding horses and donkeys and sheep in it, I'm sure, after his birth. As soon as they could move that little baby out of that manger, I'm sure, the, I'm sure the overseer of that stable would come out and say, look, now I've got to feed these calves. I've got to feed these, these uh, animals. And maybe he didn't say anything, but I know he was glad when they finally moved him out because it was just a manger. It was just a stable. But there was something holy about that place that night. We always say that this building is not the church, and there's nothing particularly holy about this building. But when we meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this indeed is a holy place, okay? Now, nothing, nothing spectacular about the building, nothing, nothing uh, innately sanctified about the carpet. But when we're here, as we are this morning, and we feel the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, what has been profane becomes holy. What has been normal becomes extraordinary. And that stable that night was a holy place. You remember when Moses was out in the plains of Midian? He was over there after he had fled from Egypt. And he says in Exodus, the third chapter, and I believe it's the first verse, he said he went to the backside of the desert. He'd been to the backside of the desert over and over and over. There was nothing particularly holy about the backside of the desert. But this day, he came across a bush that was burning and not consumed. And when he walked up to it, God said, Take the shoes off your feet, Moses, for the ground that you're standing upon is holy ground. That ground wasn't sanctified anymore that day than it had ever been. But that day, God was there. The Lord was there meeting with him. Over in the book of Ezra, when they began to rebuild the the temple at Jerusalem after the original temple of Solomon's had been destroyed, after 70 years of captivity, they went back and they laid the foundations of that temple and some of the old priests and old men that were there that had been children uh, and had seen the first temple, they began to weep. (laughs) They began to shed tears. And, And we find out in Haggai, why? 
In the second chapter of Haggai, he says, how do you see this temple? Does it look really small compared to the other one? Does it look less in, in compared to the one that, uh, that was here of Solomon's? He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to promise you. The glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. How can that be, Lord? Because it's so much smaller. It's a much more dinky uh, setup here than it was in the glories of Solomon's day. Here's why. He said, because the, the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this temple with my glory. One day that temple would be the temple where the Lord Jesus Christ would walk. He would physically be there in that temple and he would be gracing it with the glory of the Father. Isn't that amazing? See, this humble human place became holy on this night with the presence of the Lord himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to something else that we need to consider this morning. And that's who he was. Who he was. See, the most amazing thing about that manger that night was who was laying there in it. That's what was amazing about the manger. There's nothing special about the manger or the stable. Now look, I, I have a great desire to go to the, to the Holy Land, to the land of Israel someday. And to see some of these sites. I have a great desire to see the place. They have, the, they have a place that they believe is where Jesus was born. And they have the place where they believe he was crucified. I want to see all these things. But, but I don't have to make a, some kind of pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem in order to worship the thrice holy God. Those items are just items. Those, that wood is just wood. That stone is just stone. But here on that night... When the Lord was laying in that place, it was a holy place because he was the eternal son of God. He was the eternal son of God. Now, I don't want to get too far afield on this, but I want to make this statement because it has been a problem among our people in the past. Some years ago, maybe decades ago now, there was some controversy about whether or not Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God. The idea was this, that some promoted, and that was that Jesus was always God. He was the second person of the Trinity, but he wasn't actually the Son of God until he was born of the Virgin there in Jerusalem. In other words, he was the eternal Word, capital W, Word, but he was not actually the Son until this day came. Now, personally, that was a very uh, technical and, and uh, silly thing to get off on, but some, some preachers did get off on that. But I want to affirm to you this morning that Jesus Christ is and always has been and always will be the eternal Son of God. The doctrine of eternal sonship just simply affirms that the second person of the triune Godhead has eternally existed as a son. That is, there was never a time when he was not the son of God. There's always been a father-son relationship within the Trinity. And the son of God is not merely a title or a role that he assumed at, at the point where he was born and laid in that manger. You see, his essential identity is bound up with the fact that he is the son of God of God as the second person of the Trinity. You say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, John tells us in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And he also uh, goes on to affirm that uh, this man who came, who is the Son of God, was that Word. But, okay, what about, just, just so we don't get off on this sometime. <laughs> you know, one of the desires of the pastor is that you not be led astray by some false teaching. So let's just quickly talk about this for a minute. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 should settle the matter. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. That tells me that however Jesus Christ exists today, he has always existed. Now, now in the sense of him becoming flesh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about his essential nature. He was the son of God. Turn sometime back over to Proverbs, the 30th chapter, and you'll see that uh, in that chapter, uh, the writer there, who is Solomon, we believe, he was uh, uh, making some statements about God, and he asked this question in verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Now, let me just stop there before I finish that. That sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? <laughs> that sounds a lot like the eternal God who established all the ends of the earth. He's asking a rhetorical question here. Who is he? And then he finishes it off by saying this, What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? The writer of Proverbs thought he was the eternal son of God. Over in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to probably come back to Galatians before the end of this message, but, uh, but in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, we read this, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, let me ask you something. Can you send something that you don't already have? <laughs> I don't think so. I can't send you something I don't already have. I might go get something if I didn't have it already. I might try to make something if I didn't have it already. But here we read that God sent forth his son. You know what that tells me? He was already his son when he sent him. You can even turn back just a page or two from where our text is in Luke chapter 1 uh, and see in verse 35 as the angel was telling Mary about what was going to happen. He said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Notice it didn't say it shall become the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has always been the eternal Son of God. And the point of that is this. This is the point I want to make. First of all, don't get off on that other heresy. But, but also, from the moment of conception... From the time he was conceived in the womb through the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost until his first cry as a newborn, until his final cry on the cross, he was the eternal Son of God. But also notice this, he was one of us. He was one of us. Remember what Galatians said? He was made under the law, made of a woman. There were those that taught in that day as well that all that Jesus was was a spirit inhabiting a body. A spirit that looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. There were many manifestations of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I believe one of the times that he manifested himself is when he appeared to Abraham. 
and he told him about what was going to happen in Sodom, and he, he, he also told him about uh, 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 Sarah going to conceive. I believe that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a, it was a manifestation of him here, but not in the flesh. I believe when Jacob uh, wrestled with the angel the, uh, that, that he's called there, I believe he was the very son of God, but he was not manifest in the flesh. But when he was conceived in the womb and, to the, uh, and he was brought forth and laid in that manger, he was one of us. He was a human being. He was one who was uh, made of a woman, made under the law. Now understand, he was without the sin nature that we possess. He never did the things we do and that we have done. He always did the right thing. He's, we're told in one place he hath done all things well. I don't know about you, I can't say I've done all things well. I've messed a lot of things up in my life. I messed some things up this week. I said some things I shouldn't have said. I thought some things I shouldn't have thought. I did some things I shouldn't have done. But the Lord Jesus Christ never had a regret. He never had to repent. <laughs> he never had to do anything like we do. But yet he was one of us. He was one of us. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because you see, this eternal Son of God, now this is, this is what will blow your mind if you really think about it. He was divine royalty. He was divine royalty. As, son of, as the Son of God, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Going all the way back to Jacob, when he was laying on his deathbed, blessing his children, he, in, in Genesis chapter 49, he said this of Judah. And Judah, as you know, would be the kingly line. That's the line through which Christ was born. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. I love that statement. He said, the scepter, that is the, 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 the earthly line of kingship, will not end until. Now that tells me it ended. It ended at some point. Now where did it end? It ended with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, David was a great king. David was a, uh, the best king of all, uh, according to most who evaluate the kings of Judah. But, but the kingship ended when Shiloh, what does Shiloh mean? Shiloh means peace. This is where you get the word shalom. It's the manifestation of peace. Is that not what the Lord Jesus Christ did? He came here and he made peace between Adam's posterity and the Lord himself, you see. All of his elect children were reconciled. To himself, he made peace. He made peace. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Here again is that reference to the eternal Son of God. And Isaiah puts it this way, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Once again, back over in Luke chapter 1, when the angel was telling Mary about what was going to happen. In verse 30, he said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. 
And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And the point of all this is to remind us that as divine royalty, he could have commanded the audience of every king of every nation in the entire world. And yet, he was laid in a manger. He was laid in a manger. So let's, let's close by thinking about what this means. What does it mean? What is the lesson of the manger? Well, first of all, the manger confirms his humanity. We've already mentioned that, but understand this, that the, that the Christmas story, the nativity story, is not just a story made up to entertain us. It tells us something. It's very important. Very God became very man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. In Isaiah 66, I... I just think about this often when I think about the birth of Christ. I want you to listen to what, um, what the writer here says. Now, Isaiah 66 at verse 1. Now, now think about this in, in light of the, of the manger. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house? that you build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? In other words, I am so great, it's beyond your comprehension. It's even beyond your ability to worship me properly. You can't build me a house that would house me. You can't give me a place where I can rest. I am in heaven. The heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. And he goes on to say, for all those things hath my hand made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. That sounds like a God that can't be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, doesn't it? That sounds like a God that is too high for me. That sounds like a God that I need to grovel before and I need to hide from because He is so much more powerful, He'll never notice me. But then look what He says. But to this man will I look. Surely He's going to be talking about the great kings of the world. Surely the Charlemagnes and the Napoleons and those who would take honor to themselves, surely it's got to be those. Surely when he's born into this world, he'll be born in at least, if not the palace, at least in the temple, somewhere close to the religious hierarchy. But no, this God who sits high on his throne, we're told, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. You know, it's not the proud Pharisee that catches God's attention, or at least not in a good way. <laughs> Sometimes when we're being proud Pharisees, I'm afraid I catch his attention and, and he almost me. But when the Pharisee marched up to the front of the temple and began to pray within himself, saying, I'm so glad I'm not like this, everybody else. I do this and I do that. I tithe, I give, I live right. Boy, I'm sure not like that old public. I'm sure he turned around and looked at that old publican at the back of the church back there. He said, I'm glad I'm not like him. 
But that old publican just, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven so much. He said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The gods of the, of the Greeks and the Romans, the gods of the pagan world, they're too high to be touched. But our God, who is very God, sits high but looks low. See, the manger, as we've already said, is a very human story, and we can identify with him. The first bed for the king of kings was not a royal cradle, but a lowly manger. I can identify with that. The manger confirms his humanity, and it confirms his humility. You know, he was the meekest of the meek. Zechariah, the ninth chapter, ninth verse, says that he's going to come, he's just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass he didn't come marching into jerusalem at the head of an army he didn't go down the streets of rome in a grand triumph like caesar he rode into jerusalem upon a upon a donkey a little ass who was the foal of an ass and he was lowly which means poor and afflicted meek and humble it's the same word that's 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 uh, written as meek in the New Testament, in fact, Matthew 21 and verse 5 quotes Zechariah 9, 9 and uses the term meek in place of the word lowly. You know, meekness, too many people think meekness is weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power restrained by humility. You think about all the times that the Lord Jesus Christ as a child was, you know, every kid's bullied at some point. Every kid has problems with other kids. Can you just see him as an eight or 10 year old? Because I believe he knew as, long, as early as he was able to know anything, I believe he knew who he was, that he was the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Can you just see him in some kind of dispute where they're, you know, they're picking him last for the football team or they're picking, they're, they're pushing him around a little bit and he's looking at them and said, I could, I could destroy them with a word. Look at the mountains over there. I made those mountains. I could pick them up and I could drop them on anybody who was my enemy. And yet he restrained himself with the meekness that is not weakness, but that is power with humility. And therefore, he can comfort the meek and the poor and afflicted. We sing that song, poor and afflicted though I am, I have a rich almighty friend. Matthew chapter 11. Notice verse 28. Come unto me, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this is a humble God. This is a meek God. He was meek and lowly, and therefore he can comfort the meek and the lowly. Now, I realize this is used oftentimes to, to talk to dead alien sinners and tell them, oh, you've got to do something in order to be born again. But, beloved, this is talking to the born again. One who's not been born again isn't poor and afflicted. One who's not been born again enjoys the world. He's at home in the world. But I'll tell you, when you've been born again, child of God, you're no longer at home in the world. 
You no longer find this world as your home. You're a stranger and a pilgrim and a sojourner just passing through. And you have burdens that you didn't have before. You have the burden of sin upon your shoulders that you feel that you didn't feel before. You have the burden of all the stresses of life and the disappointments of life upon you. And he says to that one who's already been born again, just come unto me because I am me. You see, we can't approach him He is not some God that we can't approach unto. Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. He is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. You see, beloved, because he was humble, we can come to him humbly and obtain grace to help in time of need. The lesson of the manger is that he came. He became a man. I don't understand how it can be. I Don't ask me to explain it. All I know is this, that he was fully man and he was fully God. I've heard it put this way, that he was so much man as if he were not God at all, and he was so much God as if he were not man at all. <laughs> that's, that's all I know to tell you. He was completely both. He was the son of God and the son of man. But because he was, we have hope. You see, not only does the manger confirm his humanity and his humility, it confirms our hope of eternity. So what about the manger? What's the lesson of the manger? The lesson of the manger is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And the further lesson is we don't stop at the manger. Because in the very prophecy of his birth that the angel Gabriel gave to his earthly father, his stepfather, Joseph. He said to him, Fear not, Joseph, back in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And here's the beauty. This is the ultimate lesson of the manger. This is the ultimate thing we need to take. When we look at the manger, we don't stop there. It's not about Santa Claus. It's not about presents. It's not about gifts or wise men or anything else. It's about that babe in the manger that we're told that she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Praise God he didn't stop at the manger. Too many times we stop at the manger, don't we? But he grew up. When he was 12 years old, he told his mother, now think about this, I've had, my children have been 12 years old. One of, the, one, of the big, one of the greatest emotions I have about my children, I love them tremendously, but it's pity, it's pity. I think about all that they're going through and all they're going to face, and it seems like that's one of the greatest emotions I have when I think about my children. And at age 12, can you imagine if your son at age 12 came to you after having been teaching some scribes and Pharisees in the temple and said, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? I wanted to shield my children. I wanted to protect them. I wanted to maintain their innocence. I didn't want them to know how terrible this world could be. I didn't want them to understand at 12 all the things that could afflict them. But the Lord Jesus Christ at 12 years old knew what was coming. And he was going to experience the world in a way you and I, praise God, will never have to experience it. He was going to take all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the sin of every single one of his elect children upon himself and become sin for them. And he knew that at age 12. 
And he kept going, and every step he took in his life was a step toward the cross. What's the lesson of the manger? That there had to be a manger before there was a cross. But the cross is the ultimate end of Jesus' manifestation here in this world as a man. And God forbid, Paul says, that I should glory saving the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't glory in the manger. We glory in the cross. And we glory in the fact that he has finished the work and he has completely saved us from our sins. Praise God for his unspeakable gift. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.